0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God.
1: Well, before we dig into that passage this morning, let us go before our God in prayer and pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What well, is good to gather together as God's people to worship and praise Him. And it's good to be here with you today. I know for myself I can get stuck in my narrow band of ministry. The pastoral cares and concerns of, of Cornerstone can... Narrow my focus into a small bubble. And it's good to remember that God is at work in this broad and wide world, and He is at work in Emmaus just down the road. So it is good to see God at work here in your midst with you today. When Pastor Mark reached out a couple weeks ago asking if I would uh, preach this morning and uh, wondering what I might preach on, he jokingly said, I'm okay with whatever you want to preach as long as you preach the gospel. And we laugh about that, because hopefully that's what we're preaching every week. But oftentimes, in our own hearts, isn't it so easy to forget the gospel? We say we preach the gospel every week, and we should, but we should be hearing and understanding and remembering the gospel again and again and again. We constantly have this message from the world that we are our own gods. We are alone. We have to make a path for ourselves. We have to become. Identity flows from within us. But our God has a different message for us this morning. His grace is sufficient for us. The identity that comes from outside and into us in Christ Jesus is what really matters. We have received grace upon grace from the God of all mercy and peace. And that is our ultimate reality in joy. Eugene Peterson once wrote, I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. The reality, of course, is that God is sovereign and Christ is Savior. That God is sovereign and Christ is Savior. That is true reality. And for me, I I need this all the time because I am constantly tempted to despair. The world pulls on my affections, and my own sin always continually tries to blind me to who I am in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we all need to go back. We need to be reminded and remember what is true, the reality that God is sovereign and Christ is Savior. Well, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, correcting, and righteousness— But some passages are just, I don't want to say better, but just more beautiful than others. Some passages are just more breathtaking than others. And I would say that definitely about Ephesians 1. The scope and clarity of this passage are unparalleled, really. It deals with direct, ultimate reality. Ephesians 1 really tells us the end for which God created the world. If someone asks you, why did God make the world? Why is there something rather than nothing? I can't think of a better answer than what we read here in this passage. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What a purpose statement. What a purpose statement. The end for which God created the world is that he might lavish his love upon a chosen people in order that his glorious grace might be displayed to them and end them forever. And all things we see through this passage, and especially our salvation, should lead us to glorify God. We see that God is the sole author and perfecter of our faith. We can take no credit, nor can we receive any of the praise from our faith. All things in our salvation are to the praise of his glorious grace. And we will see that this morning, first through the logic of this passage. We are called to be a gospel-believing church, and one of the ways that we do that is by transforming our minds and our hearts according to the word of God. God has made us logical, reasoning beings, and in his word we see it to be robustly cogent. We find it to be this beautiful, logical masterpiece, showing us how these realities of our lives can intertwine together. The purposes of God can, in our redemption, weave together in such a beautiful way that he brings ultimate good to us and ultimate glory to himself. God has given us his word to show us himself, to convince us that it is true, to argue with our doubts, to persuade us in our failings. And we are called to return to it again and again, to trust in him. Now Ephesians is a letter of grace and peace written by Paul to convince the churches of Asia of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And it begins as many of his similar letters do. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul first identifies himself as an apostle, one specifically set apart by the will of God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. He then identifies the Ephesians as saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I love that Paul calls these struggling, often failing, prone-to-wander Christians, saints. He calls them saints as their primary marker of identity. And it gives me such strength and hope for myself. And saints literally means consecrated ones or holy ones. It is used over 60 times in the New Testament to refer to believers. To be a saint is not to be in a state of sinless perfection, as some might think, nor is it a special rank of Christian. It is to belong to God by faith, having all of your sins washed away in his grace. So if you believe in Christ Jesus this morning, your fundamental identity is also saint. You are holy, set apart, consecrated, and loved. As saints, beloved of God, we are heirs of grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this phrase, this sentence is the exact same greeting that Paul gives in Romans and in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of our hope. Grace and peace is a declaration from God about the status and reality of all those who believe in Him. Today, in Christ, your status is grace. You have the free and unmerited favor of God. It is yours. You stand in a right relationship with God. To you belongs the surpassing gift of grace, And flowing from this grace, we have peace with God. Romans 5 begins, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of peace has brought an end to the hostility and enmity that stood against us because of our sin. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he has canceled, nailing it to the cross saints of West Valley, chosen in Christ, you are the recipients of grace and peace. And this should get us fired up. If this doesn't warm our heart, if this doesn't stir our affections, I don't know what can. This should get us roused in the morning and excited for what God has done in and through Christ Jesus on our behalf. And Paul was fired up in this passage. He couldn't help himself. The rest of this passage, verses 3 through 14, is one long, run-on sentence in the Greek, extolling and praising and building upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus. His mind was rapid-firing, phrase after phrase, clause after clause, and nuance after nuance, expanding and expounding upon the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. I wouldn't want to diagram this sentence, because it's... Two paragraphs in English, but I'm so glad that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote it for us to digest and ponder. So let's dig into that now. His first phrase in in this long sentence is, To the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This reality belongs to us now, but not just now. Paul here pulls back the curtain on eternity and shows us that he chose us for these things. In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Our God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is the sovereign over all things. And we might say he's especially sovereign over our salvation. He chose us in Christ before he shaped the earth or flung the stars. These things were secondary in his mind. As he was shaping this universe, it was for us. It was for a place. He was building a home that we might dwell with him, live with him, experience fellowship and joy in the intimacy of relationship with him. This is how much he loves us. You are the crowning jewel of God's creation. For you, God designed, built, and established all things in this universe so that he might live and dwell and be in relationship with you. But here, at the beginning of all things, we see the beginning of our great problem, our fall into sin and misery, because we chose not to walk blameless before him, but to walk away from him. We chose the fleeting tastes of sin rather than the holy weight of his glory. And this is not just a thing for Adam and Eve when they fell, but is transferred down to all of us. This is the condition of all of our hearts, that we seek the things of ourselves rather than the things of God. Our need became an infinite need because we rebelled against the infinite God. Verse 7 speaks of our trespasses, which more than being simply outward actions, really reveal the depth and depravity of our broken and fallen hearts. Yet even as sin rises as a tidal wave to sweep us into death and judgment, we see that God himself has made a way, even from the beginning. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace God's solution to the problem of sin and evil was not an afterthought. It was not just patched together on a whim. No, in love he predestined us before we were ever born or had sinned to be his adopted children. According to this will, we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. This was and is the profound plan of our God. And we see that not only was this the plan that he established in the past and and made perfect in the present for us and in Christ Jesus, but also tying the future into this as well, we see that he will still unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ Jesus. And all of this, creation, fall, redemption and future restoration is to the praise of his glorious grace. God's sovereignty at the beginning necessarily involves his sovereignty all the way to the end. And the debate, which often, often happens between Reformed Christians and other Christians, isn't really about if God elects, but how God elects. The debate is, debate is really about the basis upon which God elects his people. So the question is, who really has the ultimate choice in salvation? Is it God's choice, or is it our choice? And one common answer is that God chooses us because we first choose God. This is conditional election. The idea that God ordains because he foreknows a believer's choice of faith, or sees a condition in them that spurs his choice to choose them. But our answer from the scriptures and from this passage is that we choose God because God first chooses us, because of unconditional election, because we know that our sin runs too deep, and there is nothing in us that could ever condition or make us good enough or pleasing to God, or to make us choose God apart from his intervening work. Jesus himself directly addresses this question in John 6. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We see in this passage the beautiful reality that if the Father gives to Jesus, he will receive and save. But he does not say, all that come to me, the Father will give to me. But rather, all the Father gives to me will come. Logically, the choice of the Father comes first. Our choice is secondary and dependent upon his election. Only those whom the Father draws can and will come to him. Supernatural divine intervention is necessary for our our salvation. Because as we just heard our our natural state is such that we would never come to him on our own. In fact, the Bible says we are dead in sin, children of wrath, apart from his spirit regenerating and illuminating our hearts, and apart from the spirit at work helping us to see Jesus and working with our wills, we would never choose to follow him, but we would remain dead in our sin. We cannot earn or merit God's favor. And therefore, eternal life is only through divine and supernatural grace. As we see in Romans 3 and 4, this justification, this being counted righteous before God, comes to us as an alien righteousness. Christ's righteousness imputed from the outside into us. In Ephesians 2 8, the next chapter directly after this one that we are in today, we read for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one can boast and this leads us to worship doesn't it not? worship is the glorifying exulting boasting and resting in our god because he alone is the author and perfecter of our salvation He alone draws us to himself when we were dead in our sins. He alone is worthy of all praise and glory and honor in our salvation. And this is what verses 12 and 14 of our passage direct us to. To the glory of God. And verse 6 shows us the pinnacle of that glory. The glory of his grace to undeserving sinners. God's glory in our justification... Sanctification and glorification in him is the underlying reality, the very fabric on which all else is built, and should be first and foremost in our hearts and minds. Several years ago, I was introduced to a new concept, the idea of augmented reality. I was out walking around the streets, minding my own business, and I noticed everyone was out on their phones. They were catching monsters. And Pokemon Go seemed to become an overnight sensation that gripped the world. This this game where you could overlay the physical realm around you with your camera and GPS into a game and it united people and brought people together to search for these monsters. And shortly after Pokemon Go was introduced, the Gospel Coalition uh, uh, published an article where they argued that it taps into something fundamental inside of all of us. It is so popular because it it taps into the idea that we are a fractured world longing for community, and we are a flattened world longing for transcendence. They wrote, Pokemon Go taps into our longing for unity in a fractured world. For a moment, we are together, sharing the same physical space and playing the same game. Pokemon Go also taps into our longing for something beyond the flattened, rationalistic society of our age. Just for a moment, we feel the magic of the old mythologies and long for something beyond this present world. Did you catch that? We are so often drawn to games and to other outlets like this because it taps into something that is deeply embedded all of it, inside of all of us, a longing for a, a sense of community, to belong to a people and to have a place. And it taps into our longing for transcendence, to belong to something greater than ourselves, to have a mystery and a magic that is outside of ourselves that leads us to joy and hope and life. And we can try to augment our reality all that we want, and we do in this world. So much of what we do in our Western civilization is trying to augment the reality of the pains of this life and the frustrations. We try to overlay the fears and the death and the sinfulness with all manner of comforts and physical blessings. But ultimately, all of this will fail unless we are grounded and see and believe in the ultimate reality that God has given to us and that we see here in Ephesians 1. There is a God of all glory, and we have hope of glorification in him through Christ Jesus. It is God who initiated this on our behalf. This redemption and reconciliation is to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is logical from the word, from passages like this. Yet ultimately, the logic of a passage or even the logic of the gospel itself is insufficient to save. One of the most terrifying phrases to me in the Bible is is that The demons believe, and they shudder. They have seen God face to face. They know his sovereign might more than I do currently. And yet, they shudder. Knowledge alone will not save us, but Christ Jesus saves. Faith founded and working in his love is what saves. So we must see and receive the love of this sovereign God in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller wrote that to be loved and to be known is is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is really our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. In reading this passage, we, we can't help but feel the love of God that He has for His people. We are saints. We are beloved. We are blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him, with him, forever. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this is his eternal will and purpose. He chooses to redeem us, to forgive us, to lavish his riches upon us, giving us his wisdom, insight, and his very word. He has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We will join him in his glory. He has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glorious grace. And you don't do things like this for somebody unless you love them. What greater love could there be than God gives us himself? He sacrifices his son, his beloved treasured possession in order that we might be his the loving foreknowledge of god means that of his free will and mercy he chose to place his love on undeserving sinners like you and me we could not deserve this or earn this in fact the opposite is true all of humanity fell into sin and corruption in adam we deserve his displeasure we deserve death None is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen and sinned against his glory. And yet God in his grace and mercy has chosen to set his electing love upon some so that they might not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son as the second Adam so that in him you and I might receive his life through this love. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. I think we really have a twisted view of God's love. So often when I think about God's love, I tend to think that the Father was and is still in some way angry with me, that he is embittered towards me, that it's only Jesus that holds back his wrath from me. And... We know that God's, the Father's anger has been satisfied, justice has been satisfied, but even now it's just kind of on the edge. Just any little bit might tip him forward into that bitterness and anger toward us. But no, this is a false view of who God is. Jesus did not die so that the Father would love us. Jesus came to earth incarnate because the Father loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Before the foundation of the world, the Father has set his love upon you. And Christ came to redeem you because of the Father's great love for you. And the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to comfort us, to encourage us, and to equip us in this love of God. In 1 John 4, 8, we know that God is love. Author Joe Thorne writes this, To say that God is love is not to romanticize his character or soften his holiness. In fact, the love of God means very little apart from his holiness and justice. The love of God God is magnified in that he loves the unholy and pours out blessings upon those deserving just punishment for sin. The love of God is his effulsive benevolence toward you in Jesus Christ. It accompanies you as you walk through your afflictions, teaching you that God has not left you or forgotten you, nor does he intend to hurt you. His love means that he remains ever-present and intends even these difficult days for your good. To say that he is love means that, just as he is eternal and unchanging, so is his love. It does not waver, but remains constant in its perfection. You, on the other hand, grow weary of loving others, just as others grow tired of expressing love towards you. Your heart is not only small, but it remains corrupt. But the Lord's love is from everlasting to everlasting. What an amazing love that God has and is. We are called to look to our Heavenly Father, to receive His love, to trust in His heart for us. We are to remember his omniscience, that he is all-knowing and that he still loves us. He knows every part of you, every last thought, word, and desire, and he delights in you because of Christ Jesus. We are called to rest in the intimacy of the God who knows you and loves you. We are to remember his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, and yet for you, He veiled his power and weakness and humility, taking on a body like yours, a nature like yours. He died in your place as the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, and he gladly gives of you his strength and power, his righteousness, and his kingdom peace. We are to remember his omnipresence, that he is everywhere with us. He sees you this morning. He knows what you were going through, and He is with you. Take comfort that He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will repay all of your pain and loss with the kindness of His love forever. It's amazing to me that in the vast ages to come, we will know nothing except His kindness and love and grace forever. This truth is beautiful. It is lovely, but it's so often hard to cling to in the storms of this life. When we experience trials and pains and and suffering and loss, we need to verse ourselves and practice these things now so that when we go through these things, we have a strong anchor to hold to in times of doubt and pain and sickness. And we can think about what Paul himself is experiencing as he wrote this letter. He was in prison in Rome. All of his expectations had been shattered. He wrote to the Romans several years before, expressing his desire to soon come to them and to preach to them and then to travel to Spain to continue this mission work that God had put him on. And yet he was arrested and beaten and in prison in Judea and then in Rome all this time. And we might think his plans were derailed. He must have been bitter and frustrated by that. But even in these things, Paul saw the hand of God and the providence of his sovereign king. And what's amazing about even the fact that his plans were derailed and he was in prison was that God was working a greater purpose through that. And we see see some of those things. We know some of those things from Paul's own writings. And one of them, for us, is the fact that we even have letters like this. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written while Paul was in house arrest in Rome. We wouldn't have these letters of this amazing grace unless Paul went through these hard circumstances. And so even seeing that little piece of the puzzle, knowing that Paul's shattered circumstances were working for a greater good in his life and in our lives and for the purposes of God, we can, we can trust in that for our own lives as we experience pain pain. And hardships in the now. And we may not be sovereign. We not may not be able to see the end from the beginning and rule and control and ordain all things. But we know the one who is. And we are made in his image to reflect him in this world. So my charge to you this morning is that this starts now. As the church, that we are to display his love, his presence, and his power to the world. This is our great calling. The saving grace of our sovereign God is meant to propel us into the world with this hope. Your friends and your family, your co-workers and neighbors are living in an augmented reality. In a reality augmented by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we have the glorious purpose of spreading the good news of the true reality We are to use our our logic and our love to witness to a lost and broken world. We are called to be lights in the darkness, planting seeds of hope that will be watered and quickened by the Spirit. God has saved us in this beautiful gospel grace. He has equipped us so that we might display this grace boldly and make disciples in his name. And again, we don't do this in our own strength. We do this through Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The end for which God created the world is that he might lavish his redeeming love upon his chosen people in order that the glorious grace of Christ might be displayed in us and through us forever. So do not lose your grip on reality. In love, your Father has predestined you for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the overwhelming reality of your love to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for this grace that is sovereignly given, that we do not have to earn your favor. We do not have to try to merit this grace, but it is of a free and bountiful heart that you give these things to us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that we would meditate on these things, that we would study your word, that we would run to you again and again and again and remember the grace of the gospel that is ours. Lord, we are are a forgetful people. We so often get lulled to sleep by the cares and concerns of this world We see shiny things around us and and cling to those for our hope. But Lord, tear us away from the affections of this life and this world. Help us to put our hearts in you. Help us to see you as the most glorious, treasured possession that we own. Lord, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have this assurance and, and hope that these realities are the true realities. That these things are not fleeting, but they are what is lasting. Let us proclaim this now and forevermore in Christ's name.